Welcome to ACA Media, a podcast from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Yeah. Smooth. I practiced Man, that, that before we hit good. record, so I'm good to go. I'm Christine Becker. I'm Michael Kackman. We are uh, here together in the uh, catacombs of uh, our building on the campus of the University of Notre Dame. Yeah, inside some padded walls, which seems like an appropriate place to be now that the semester has ended. Those. And, you know, we can bang our heads against the wall safely in this space. Yeah, rough times. But at least finally we have spring-like weather. It was, you know, we had like 50 degrees. Well, there was a time where I couldn't open the windows because it was too cold, even though it was early May. And then suddenly a few days later, I couldn't open my windows because it was too hot. Boy, you're a complainer. I am. It's more, it's on behalf of my cats. They couldn't sit in the windows. Mm, and so okay. poor things. But now we're good. All, all's good. Summer weather has officially started, but we, not too hot. Not too hot. It's lovely. It's good. Mm-hmm. So uh, this uh, episode, we've, we've got some brave people to talk to here. We do. Folks who are putting themselves out there with their... With their... Like just wading on in and uh, taking on the, the material that the rest of us just really don't want to deal with. <laughs> Which I'm interested to see, especially then how... Um, and we're talking about uh, the uh, Nick Marks and Matt Sinkowitz, who've just published a book, That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. So um, first of all, the past stuff, meaning they watched... A whole lot of right-wing comedy, the likes of which I would have a problem sitting down and watching any of. Um, and now the book is out there and it's getting a lot of uh, publicity and press. And so I'd be interested to see what kind of reaction there is, particularly on the right. Yeah, there's some they're smart fellows and uh, brave. And uh, we have a conversation with them by the equally smart and brave Stephanie Brown. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and particularly great conversation, I think, you know, from the perspective of comedy studies, which you're probably not going to get some of the other podcasts that are talking to those guys. So we got the academic scholarly perspective on uh, the right wing comedy sphere and complex here. All right. Take it away, Steph. <laughs> I'm here today with the authors of a book that just came out this month on right-wing comedy called That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. Um, So please help me welcome Matt Sinkowitz and Nick Marks. So if you both just want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work beyond this book and also how you came to working on this project together. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having us on, uh, Stephanie. So I'm, I'm Matt Sinkowitz. Uh, I am uh, an associate professor of communication and international studies at Boston College. Um, and uh, I've been writing about comedy for a long time with Nick. We've got a, a number of projects that we've done together, uh, including the Comedy Studies Reader, uh, Saturday Night Live, and American Television, uh, and a bunch of other articles about comedy we've written. Uh, I also write about uh, international media and sort of the intersection of international politics and media uh, in some of my other work. And I am Nick Marks. I'm an associate professor of film and media studies in the Department of Communication Studies at Colorado State University. And yeah, our uh, uh, time working together, Matt and I, stretches back to our uh, graduate student days at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, writing about South Park and Saturday Night Live and just shows that continued to pique our interest that we didn't find a ton of exciting stuff about. So we kind of stayed on that track. I've additionally written about um, post-network television, television industry, and representational practices. But our sort of um, shared interest in the current project in right-wing comedy comes from one of those sort of uh, gaps that we noticed, uh, a, a, a 
sort of um, identifying an emergent comedy practice that we didn't see people capturing in quite the right way that we were seeing it. Um, so specifically, I think this came from an effort to acknowledge the power of our political opponents to do the thing that especially many on the left and especially us in the academy have um, overlooked or denied the potential for conservatives or right-wing folks to be funny. So we first wanted to acknowledge that, yes, uh, an entire 40, 50% of the population does possess the same ability to laugh, <laughs> to write jokes, to make fun of their political opponents in much the same way that we on the left had been celebrating the Johns, Stewart, and Sam B's over the last two decades. So why do you both think that this right-wing comedy is so understudied and not just by scholars, but it's uh, undercovered by sort of comedy critics and comedy uh, journalists more generally? You know, I mean, I think that a big part of that is that people who tend to write criticism, be it academic or popular, don't tend to like this kind of comedy. Um, and that, you know, that's one thing is if it's not something that is pleasant to you, then you might not want to, you know, spend your, you know, graduate school days writing a dissertation on it or or that sort of thing. I mean, I think there's just sort of a taste bias that goes into it. I think it's also uh, hard for, you know, the majority of people doing comedy criticism in either space, if they're coming from a left of center perspective uh, and they want to treat something, you know, more or less subjectively, uh, whatever that means exactly, but trying to treat it as a scholarly subject, that can be hard if they really dislike it. Even if they don't mind doing it, they might not feel that they can treat it uh, in an even-handed way. You know, that that's sort of a very simple explanation there. There's more theoretical stuff behind that, though. I mean, the theories of comedy that we turn to tend to find ways to delegitimize uh, conservatism in comedy or, or conservative right-wing comedy. Um, you know, uh, scholars that we use all the time are like the, the, the greatest hits of citations, the Umberto Echoes of the world. Um, you know, they acknowledge the existence, certainly, of there being uh, jokes being made by regressive forces, uh, but then they tend to, to like define comedy in a way that kind of writes them out or says that they're untrue forms of comedy or these ways of sort of belittling it, uh, which, you know, might found, you know, from a moral perspective, depending on your politics, maybe that sounds right. Uh, but it certainly uh, prevents us from taking it very seriously. And it's a uh, confirmation bias is a big part of the story. Um, you know, I think that especially in the journalist level, but I think we see this in uh, some social science research. Also, the idea that um, there's a danger, I'll say, I'm not going to say any in particular person falls into this, but as a class of people, we fall into this danger of, uh, you know, not wanting to see people who we don't like possessing something as pleasurable as comedy. Uh, I want to say that what they're doing must be something else because comedy is good and this isn't good. So they can't go together or, or something like that. I mean, that's never stated explicitly, obviously. Um, but I think that that combination of the people who write criticism don't like the aesthetics. You know, we have these theoretical backgrounds that sort of uh, put non liberal comedy into a another box and then this idea that uh you know he's you one thing is good another thing you don't think is good well you shouldn't find them together right that it seems uh it seems like they should be separate so you know that, that's how i see it i'm also sitting here thinking about how um a lot of times our conversations whether academic or casual center on taste and mm -hmm. we really strove to separate our own personal tastes and urged readers to separate their own tastes or distastes from the conversation about whether or not this is actually comedy and is politically efficacious. You know, there's there's loads of, of writing from the 
Boydusian school trying to highlight the sort of structural composition of our tastes. And we really wanted to drive toward that more structural level, writing about how this conservative comedy world is a sort of economically intertwined universe. Whether you like it or not, it exists. It's got multiple sort of channels of input and feedback loops and people guesting on one another's podcasts and live shows. So at a certain point, just because you don't like it, as long as you can separate that taste-based um, reaction to it from the uh, political reality that it is a force to be reckoned with, and we think it's only going to get more and more important the closer we get to uh, election cycles here in the next nine months. There's also, I think, a bit of intellectual or sort of field history that goes with this, something that we, we try to get at a little bit in the introduction to this book. Um, one of the boom times for media studies coincided very nicely with a boom time for liberal political satire. You know, and there's different cycles that media studies has gone through, but certainly it was a field growing in prominence and growing in influence, uh, just as Jon Stewart uh, was growing in prominence and growing in influence. Uh, and there's a lot of books and articles out there about a moment and during the Bush years uh, where uh, media studies is a, is a hot field. Uh, lots and lots of books are being written. People are very interested. And at that time, uh, you know, the, the intersection of politics and comedy in public, you know, sort of popular discourse was the uh, Colbert. It was Jon Stewart. It was Tina Fey, Sarah Palin. Um, and that coincidence can seem like a natural connection. Uh, but that, as we know, as media studies scholars, right, that was a particular moment in time for media industries, a uh, particular moment in time for media studies. None of that is less true, right? All those books are true, the ones that are talking about that moment for sure. Uh, but you don't want to mistake that moment of coincidence for something that's going to be true in perpetuity. And part of what we're trying to do is, you know, it's not so much update that, just the next the next part of that story. Amber Day, when she writes, uh, you know, Satire and Descent, she, she notes that this is not a forever connection. So you've already sort of started answering this next question, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why using the honorific of comedian is so important to sort of the theorization that you're doing in this book. First and foremost, a matter of intellectual honesty, watching Gutfeld on Fox News may not make you laugh, but it has precisely the same structure as uh, The Daily Show does. It's got a host monologue with punchlines making fun of the headlines of the day. It's got uh, skits, uh, sketches, pre-recorded bits with an in-house group of players. It's got panelists, uh, interview subjects who chime in with their sort of pithy thoughts on the day. No matter what definition of comedy you're working with, I just think it would be intellectual dishonesty to watch uh, Gutfeld to watch what Steven Crowder is doing and say that that's outrage humor, that some other thing that isn't the thing I like. Moreover, I think the more important connection we make is to the industry, right? Folks going to play live stand-up shows, they're having comedy festivals, they're calling themselves these things, outlets are calling themselves that, fan bases are laughing at them. And I just, I would just add that basically to reiterate, definitions are always dangerous. Um, as I think Nick was alluding to, there, you know, there's a real danger of a, of a sort of no true Scotsman fallacy. Once you start with the idea that somebody who standing in front of a stage telling jokes or is on a show and, and doing a format of a, of a traditional comedy show, once that's not comedy, there's no limiting principle. Comedy just becomes what you like. Our, our perspective is that is, you know, we, we, A, we come from an industrial standpoint, which means we come from a genre standpoint as much as anything. That's where we're going to make our definition. 
right? As opposed to, you know, sort of a higher theoretical idea. Again, where does it stop, right? If you don't sort of base it on what we can actually see on the screen and, and sort of the discourse that's used and all that, then it just becomes a matter of preference. And it also makes you prone to just not understanding as well as you could what you're seeing. You use this really great spatial metaphor in the book of the right-wing comedy complex uh, as sort of this multi-use space. Uh, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. We make an argument in the book that there are two complexes at play. Uh, and one is uh, we try to use the, the metaphor of a physical complex. A lot of places throughout America have these in the suburbs in particular, where there's restaurants and stores and some housing, and it's sort of built up in a in a one space, right? A one-stop shop for everything. And we say that that that's part of, of what we mean by complex is that there's a, a way in which this is built up uh, so that if you're not in that complex, if you don't tend to get involved with any of the right-wing comedy, you might never even see it. You just drive past it on the highway, right? But once you're in it, it's really good at moving you from place to place within it. That all these different show like podcasts, TV shows, stand-up uh, venues, all these different things are very good at passing you between each other. So you can just stay in that space entirely. And that's your whole comedy world. We want to say that most of the things we write about in this book are kind of above ground. We talk about Joe Rogan as a, the dirty bar. Greg Gutfeld, we describe as the big box store, you know, sort of your like daily comedy needs. Uh, and then that connects, as we argue, to a, a sort of subterranean space with the really, really ugly stuff. The, the broader thing we see happening with right-wing comedy is to paper over ideological or intra-ideological inconsistencies among mm -hmm. the modern-day right-wing movement. So you've got everything from, you know, your libertine, avowedly sexually assaulting Donald Trump types paired with uh, fundamentalist Christian Babylon B followers, folks who kind of turn their nose up at the libertarian and, and sexual views of a podcast like the Legion of Skanks, where these young men get on mic and tell the filthiest jokes and use the worst racial epithets you can think of all in the name of uh, free speech. What they have in common, so Joe Rogan, Legion of Skanks, the Babylon B, Greg Gutfeld, Steven Crowder, on and on, uh, is that even though they're not showing up to worship in the same house of God on Sundays, they all share the uh, same goal of owning the libs. They want to get a rise out of their political opponents, and they do this sort of prodding, um, sometimes trolling sense of humor that identifies them as being on one side of the political equation and all those sort of mainstream left liberals as our enemies. And whatever fights we have among ourselves are not as important as uh, holding on to minority rule. Right. So there are many entry points, as many reasons to come to the right wing comedy complex. But, you know, so you go for Greg Gutfeld and then Greg Gutfeld brings on as a guest, uh, Michael Malice, who's this really sort of trolley anarcho capitalist kind of guy. And, you know, he's got his own podcast over there. You might choose to also try that or you just might stay stay with Greg Gutfeld. But the idea is that you can, you know, have a bunch of people with really different perspectives, all frequenting the same kind of economic space. And if, you know, you change your perspectives, you want to try something different, this is getting a little bit dull. They're really good at just moving you to another store inside the complex. Right. And the, and the algorithms of social media do this very nicely, as does, the, I mean, really one of the big things is just podcast co-hosting or, or guesting. 
right? They all, even though these guys who have almost nothing in common, you know, you've got uh, Michael Malice, this like uh, radical anarcho-capitalist, libertarian, atheist, Jewish guy. And he's on the Babylon Bee podcast where they're right-wing Christians, the very particular perspective. Uh, and they got nothing in common except A, as Nick notes, they both like to own the libs. And B, they're part of this complex. They're part of this space where they move people around. And as Nick noted, that, that helps to paper over real differences. Um, so yeah, the, the idea of this sort of like shopping center with a store for everyone and, you know, path to go between them all is a, a recruiting tool and one that we think is uh, really politically important. So you've already sort of started talking about the digital media ecosystem, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how algorithms work to cement, to use a construction metaphor, this right-wing comedy complex. Really the, the story of, um, the, the kind of right-wing comedy industry we think begins with early 21st century audience siloing, right? So the practice of hardcore targeting of a, a niche audience, wh whether that's young, straight, white men on Comedy Central or women on Lifetime, right? Those cable television practices of the 90s and 2000s, uh, increasing over time into the social media era so that now you have created for yourself or rather our social media overlords have created for you a kind of filter bubble that just echoes the type of news opinions cultural content that you're predisposed to like circulates that among you and a pre-selected group of like-minded folks so that you are unlikely to be exposed to uh, the right-wing comedy universe so i as a lefty would be unlikely to see uh you know clips being shared by Gutfeld from my relatives in, in Texas or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. It, you know, certainly, uh, you know, we could definitely go back to, you know, the end of the Fairness Doctrine and, and you know, Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Michael Savage and the right wing radio world, which, you know, much has been written about quite well. Uh, but of course, that's broadcast. And if you're in your car, you hit the scan button on an AM radio in a car and it neutrally takes you to all the stations from, you know, the sports, you know, listen to the baseball game or whatever. And then it stops on Rush Limbaugh. And it's just there. It hasn't been sent to you, forced out to you. I know everybody knows this, uh, but, you know, he was doing this kind of targeting, but in a way that was much easier to see. It was hard to avoid. Uh, and then, of course, now it's it's that. But but we get, we all have our own scans. Right. We don't we don't hear what's what's happening elsewhere. Uh, and one of the amazing things that we came across with this um, is is that even though, you know, we sort of had to independently kind of come to each of these different characters we write about in the book, uh, whenever you need to write a transition of a connection between any two of them, they're always there. We pick any two characters from our book, they always have appeared in each other, they've always connected. Uh, there's always some algorithm or something that, that like suggests this alongside that. Uh, and so you sort of take the targeting of that previous era that we see in Limbaugh and Hannity, you add the algorithmic stuff going on now, and you get this double factor of them becoming more and more intertwined with each other and people who don't listen to any of them becoming less and less aware of their existence. Uh, to go back to your earlier point, stuff about recruitment, as uh, the, the sort of Rogan audience without a fully formed political identity enters voting age and enters political, uh, politically active spaces, you know, we urge left and liberal comedians not to see this ideological territory to these right wing uh, competitors on the scene uh, to, to continue to, to try new things, uh, to use comedy as an active recruitment tool, because we see this being a very powerful recruitment tool 
on the right already and, and kind of want to sound the alarm on that in advance of 22 and 24. So your book makes a really productive intervention, not just in an object of study for comedy studies, but also a way of thinking about approaches to comedy studies. So I guess, what do you hope people take away from your book in terms of future scholarship? Breaking through the taste thing is really important to uh, try to find a way to write about stuff that you don't that you don't personally like very much. In other words, I, well, what I'd say is that, you know, we don't need to necessarily stop writing about anything. We can include, we can yes and this and be more open to writing about things that we're not not so interested uh, in from a sort of personal perspective. You know, I also think that if we want to really understand how new media forms and industrial connections work, we need to test them in a lot of different spaces or else we're going to end up with sort of bad, bad understandings. Because if we, if we only want to look at the way, you know, sort of the podcasting world and the economics of podcasting impact things, we look at the same kinds of podcasts over and over again. Right? We don't branch out, then we're not going to only misunderstand those podcasts we don't study. We're going to misunderstand podcasts. Even if all you're interested in is the medium and the industry, then we need to like really break away and look at different places of it and see how they function to do any sort of comparative work. You know, We can sort of say that's something you can take from the book and you don't have to listen to a single Nazi podcast. So I can't not ask about your research trip to CPAC to sort of experience the liveness and the live experience of watching right-wing comedy uh, so can we end by you uh, talking a little bit about what that was like? It's, it's a lot of like boring political speech making. But if you saw uh, Borat's subsequent movie film, you know, there's a scene film that CPAC 2020 where uh, Sasha Baron Cohen breaks in the room at, dressed in a rubber suit. Uh, wait, wait, have I got the details of this right, Matt? Do you remember? He's got a, over his shoulder. He has a woman over his shoulder. Got a woman over his shoulder yeah. that he wants to give as a gift to uh, Vice Premier Pence, as he calls him. So it kind of happened uh, in a flash. Our, our We haven't found our, our pixels must be in that movie. Like there, there is some light that bounced off of us that is in, in subsequent movie film. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we went there to be clear, we were trying to look at this sort of embody, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. see it sort of directly to politics. Uh, you know, Diamond and Silk, they, they, we wanted to see them do their, their performance in front of, you know, thousands of people, you know, like as a, in a political space. And, you know, as we write about in the book, it was, you know, are there jokes, you know, in a, um, you know, sort of a classical sense, very well constructed? Like, no, they are not. Uh, but did they have a crowd rolling, like laughing and, and into it and holding on every insult joke about Bernie Sanders being old? I mean, they did. It was quite something that you had to feel it, though. You watch it on screen, it can kill it. Uh, it can flatten it out and you don't see that they're actually playing off of the rhythms of the crowd and all that. Um, you know, so we saw that. We also saw some very bad failed uh, comedy experiments. Uh, um, what was what name? Nick, what was the play? What, what were they reading? I can't even remember what controversy this was. They were reading the text message transcripts between the FBI agent and his illicit love affair. And it was like supposed to be really funny. That one did not. That just like fell terribly flat. <laughs> I think that's a great teaser uh, for the conclusion of the book. Uh, do you just want to say the name one more time and tell everyone where they can get it? Yeah, the book is That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them, out from University of California Press in early May 2022. You can buy from them or from your local bookstores or from the big bad corporate places too. Uh, we want you to read it and engage it and, and tell us we're wrong or, and tell us we're right and everything in between. 
Well, thank you both so much for coming on to talk about this really important research. I think it's going to spark some really useful conversations within comedy studies. I can't wait to see how people build on this work. All right. Good stuff. It's stuff. Yeah, it is stuff. Yep. Uh, but yeah, some really important lessons, like you were saying at the at the start of this episode, of lessons to research the things you don't necessarily like or the things that are going to make you uncomfortable. Um, and there's there's an important lesson in there. Yeah, and you know, especially to wade in on something as as contextual and kind of just super hard to get your head around as comedy in general. I mean, I think anybody who who writes or talks about comedy is um, incredibly brave and courageous anyway. Yeah. And so to um, to try to capture something that is that uh, slippery in such a particular kind of political context, that's, that's hard to do. Well, especially their point about trying to disconnect taste from, you know, the attempt to define if this is comedy or not. And so you could say, like, disconnect taste from studying drama or whatever, and that's one thing. But disconnecting it from comedy is so, so difficult. Yeah. Um, and then that idea of, you know, just because you don't think it's funny doesn't mean it's not comedy. Like, it's a really tough idea to, to grapple with. So it's a really Im- Im- impressive feat that they've done with the book. Yeah, and I think all of us are probably guilty to some degree of mapping our own taste cultures onto the objects we study. And it's easy to talk about it, that in relationship to, like, you know, people who do fan studies and that. That kind of work, but all of us do it. Yeah, I think there's also there's an important lesson here. Uh, you know, I'm thinking back now a generation ago when when folks of our uh, age were in grad school. I think there were an awful lot of presumptions about uh, the the political valence of particular kinds of cultural strategies. Mm-hmm. So we think like comedy and satire and parody, like those are the tactics of the left or um, the carnivalesque as a sort of uh, bottom-up tactic that is always somehow almost inherently going to be a, a kind of not just populist but left populist kind of response to to structures of power, and those kinds of assumptions are pretty hard to sustain anymore. Yeah, I think that that point they talked about then that you need to look at these other spaces and to, uh, you know understand how things function in those spaces, and you can't just kind of have your carve outs. And we're in such a carve out world as they talk about in terms of how social media works and the algorithm works and all that, and then even just like that stark idea of political polarization, where it seems easy to map like, oh, of course we're so divided, and so this goes here and that goes there, and as we all know, things are so much more complicated than any of that. Yes, they are. But a really nice, uh, a really nice glimpse here, and some uh, good, good uh, food for thought. Yeah, and I think this would also be fun, but also a, a really intriguing challenge to bring this into the classroom to figure out how to teach mm-hmm. this, and particularly again that idea of what you like, what you don't like, and how that quickly folds into notions of of politics. And like, if I had to teach, if I was doing my TV history class or something like that, and I had to teach, you know, Greg Gutfeld. Um, who I don't care for in terms of the kinds of things he's making fun of. Um, but how do you present that in the classroom in a way that I would present anything that I did like or I did respect? Um, and how to do that without shutting down or, um, you know, kind of even offending, a, you know, a conservative student in the classroom, like bringing this into the teaching realm ratchets it up to 11 for me. It does. It does. But it again, that's such a it's such an important lesson, I think, to to detach the evaluative from the critical mm-hmm. as much as you can. I mean, that's always that's always really hard. And so the question is not 
is this funny, which is a yes or no question, and yes or no questions are boring. <laughs> um, and also it's like the least interesting framing. But But if you ask what is gained in talking about this as comedy, mm. then you can have a really, really productive conversation about about the circulation of, of particular kinds of discourses and power and, you know, all the stuff that is actually meaningful to talk about. Yeah. Um, in the same way that you could you can apply that kind of question to any object uh, separate from its particular kind of political tendencies, I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a larger project what we try to do in our classes then, right? And the kind of larger point of whatever it is you're teaching, that larger framework fit it into that way. And so that's a... That's good. Now, I want to take that class with you. I want to have you teach me about those interesting things. We're all learning. We're all just trying to <laughs> we're all just trying to get by. Right. All right. Because we are now in the era of Acamedia Bites. You're supposed to say no it doesn't. Oh, right. No it doesn't. Uh, Acamedia rules. Yeah. <laughs> Com was that comedy? Gutfeld drools. <laughs> That was not comedy. No, it wasn't it had comedy. The, it had the form but, of but a joke, but I'm, it, it's just an observation that we're now doing these succinct episodes where we just kind of drop in, nail a really good topic, and then say, "See ya." Yep. Yeah, it's That's working. Our deal. I think. I hope. I think it's, it's working. working. Let us know if you think it's working or not. You can reach us at info at aka-media dot org. Yeah. Uh, we have a website. Aka-media.org. Yeah. We're on Twitter, Aka underscore media. Oh, you are so good. And you know what is the best thing about this? What? It's that somehow we have uh, developed uh, a pattern where you are the one who has to remember this shit, and I don't. <laughs> so it's great. Yeah, I don't know how we need to flip those poles. Uh, no, like no, that's, we're good. It's also we're a binary good. that we need to deconstruct, I nope. think. Some binaries are very, very <laughs> useful, and I like this one. All right. We are grateful to our co-conspirators, Todd Thompson down at the University of Texas, Bill Kirkpatrick in the Northern Lands at the University of Winnipeg. We've got Stephanie Brown at Washington College. And thank you so much, Stephanie, for your fantastic work doing yes, this interview indeed. with Nick Marks and Matt Sinkowitz. And thank you to them as well. We also have on board Frank Mondelli at Stanford. And you're going to hear more about comedy. We've got our new producer, Diana De Pasquale, who's also involved in comedy studies. And she's working on some new pieces for us. So things are going to be really hilarious, but also very so thoughtful funny. about hilarity. Really funny. Are we now a comedy podcast then? Does that make <laughs> us? We need Shut to work her. on that definition if we're... Uh, a comedy podcast. Well, we are funny. Mm. Mm. It's a form of funny. And thank you also to SCMS for sponsoring this podcast and supporting us. Get out there, harvest some vitamin D, and... Uh, Get your cats in those windows. 